Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Welcome to Mother Knows Death. Each week we will be interviewing an expert for an external exam. And this week in Pathology in the News on Mother Knows Death, Maria and I were discussing a case that we saw in the news with a lady named Heather Presti, who is a nurse that has admitted to trying to kill 22 of her patients. And of course, when I read this news story this week, my first thought was my great friend, Amy Lochran, you might know her as the good nurse. And I think we're going to talk to her and see if we could get a little bit of her story and see why she was the first person that popped into my head. So welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you. I, lo I love your face and I wish you could live closer to me so we could actually hang out more in, in person. Well, I don't miss New Jersey. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice time in New Jersey. For it's, it's turning out of the nice time. You know, we were talking about that earlier, how crappy the weather is here now. But do you do you believe that this happened again, that a nurse is trying to kill their patients? Can you believe that it's in the news oh, again? Yeah. Well, it, the state of healthcare right now, we are in the middle of a mental health crisis. And one of the reasons that Charlie Cullen was able to get away with what he was doing for 16 years was because we were in a, a challenging time in nursing at that time as well. And also, when mental health is not addressed properly, you can, like, if it's OCD or if it's a power struggle or trauma, whatever it is, that can just go awry and head to the worst case scenario, which is killing people, killing patients, because there's a sense of power. Um, but it also is a lesson that we're no farther 20 years later. And I think I should say further, we're no further along in our mental health work that we should be doing with the healthcare community. So for the for our listeners that have never heard of your story or why I first thought of you when this nurse killed patients, can you describe to us who Charles Cullen is and your relationship to him? So... Charles Cullen, Charlie, my friend Charlie, uh, we worked together in New Jersey in Somerset Medical Center, and he was um, he was fired, and they did an investigation, which I was part of, and he was found to have murdered uh, between 400 and 1,000 people. And during that investigation, he admitted to murdering, I believe it was only 40 people. The reason that he admitted to killing only 40 people is because those were the people that he could remember murdering. He could remember their name, the circumstances, and he knew that his injection or his cocktail of IVs 
medication and poison that he gave to them was the direct result of their deaths. The other people, it's really just that he knows that he attempted to harm as many, you know, who knows? It's probably countless, but he wouldn't admit to those things unless he was certain that he was the one who murdered them, even though he would never say the word murder. He would never say the word kill. He um, he was still in denial even when he was in prison. So anyway, that's the long story. So you so you worked with him and how were you? How did you get involved? So he admitted to killing these people. And what was what was your role in in that? So I worked with the New Jersey prosecution undercover uh, to catch Charlie. And essentially, medical homicide is one of the most difficult things to prove because you don't have a smoking gun. You don't have a um, there. There isn't always a direct link to the perpetrator. And I was his closest friend. So I was able to get close enough to him to get the best case scenario. Now, they were pretty well along in their investigations. They had already exhumed a body when they brought me on to help. Um, but the best case scenario was getting a confession out of him. So I wore a wire and I recorded and had my own phone tapped. I recorded uh, phone calls with him. And we eventually did get a confession out of him. When you got all of this information and he eventually went to, to trial and everything, did you have to go on the stand as, as an expert witness or how did that work? So because I was a CI, a confidential informant, no one knew who I was. I was completely kept under wraps. It was I was nowhere in the paperwork in the investigation except for CI. So the only way that anyone would be able to know who the CI was is if you were in the inner circle of the New Jersey prosecution. But I was completely anonymous. They went through the trial. I did not have to be on, on the stand or even a part of the trial because he confessed and the night that he confessed to me, in fact, a little behind the scenes, um, he wanted the death penalty. And he decided after that night that that probably was not in his best interest. He did have have daughters. And um, and I think that he realized that he he needed also to help the detectives with with at least helping the victims' families understand what really happened. And what what year was this that he finally was admitted to doing this and went through court and stuff? Like, what year was that? So in 2003, uh, he was arrested and put in jail. And then it took a couple of years of going through the trial. So during that time... How do you go back to being a normal nurse? Like, what, what does that happen? Just like what happened with your life as far as that was concerned? 
Well, I went back to work at Somerset Medical Center. No one knew that I had helped the detectives. And of course, because I was his best friend, um, there were also a lot of rumors. And I, I wanted to be the person to dispel those rumors. And I felt like fleeing the situation would just make it worse. Um, so I just wanted to be there to defend myself. So I stayed at Somerset Medical Center for a while. The other thing was that I had and have um, a pretty serious heart condition. I have electrical cardiomyopathy and I needed the insurance. So back in those days, 20 years ago, you could be denied medical insurance for having a pre-existing condition. They can't do that now. Um, but at the time, if I had left my position, I would not be able to get health insurance and I probably wouldn't be able to get another job. That's that's really crazy. So in so te about 10 years later, a book came out about about this whole entire situation that was called The Good Nurse. And how did you how did you first hear about that? Well, it was 2008 or 2009. Um, Charles Graber, who wrote The Good Nurse, he is a very talented and brilliant investigative reporter. And he had been writing a book about Charlie Cullen and had already done all of the research. He just felt like there was something missing. And he kept reading through the documents that the detectives and the New Jersey prosecution did were able to share with him. And he did see that there was a CI on there. And then the story goes that he uh, he went to some type of award ceremony where the detectives that I worked with, Danny Baldwin and Tim Braun, the lead detectives, uh, they were receiving an award for their help in for their brilliant detective work in getting Charles Cullen behind bars. And during that ceremony, they said, this goes out to Agent Amy. And so Charles Graber was there and he's like, who? Agent <laughs> Amy. Mm. So he combed through uh, all of what he had because he did have some evidence that he had gotten from uh, Somerset Medical Center, including the medical records. And the only Amy that was there was Amy Loughran. So he found me on Facebook and reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And of course, I was like, absolutely freaking not. No. <laughs> what? No, absolutely not. Like, no. And then I talked to the detectives and I found out that they were talking to him already and all of the civil suits were done, at least where they may have had to call me in. So I started working with Charles Graper and then, yeah, the book came out. What, what was it that you were like, hell no, at first? Like, you were you, I mean, because this was years after it happened, were you just trying to move on with your life and put that behind you? I think I was scared. Still, yeah, I was still traumatized. I really did not know that much about what had actually happened behind the scenes. I just knew that I had put my friend in prison. And yes, of course, I, I know he's a murderer. I understand he needed to be behind bars. 
I was just so conflicted. I was so embarrassed that I had befriended a serial killer. And as I was also very embarrassed that I still cared for him. And I really didn't want to talk about those things. And the other thing was I did not want to sensationalize yet another serial killer. And I didn't think it was going to do anyone any good. And I was really concerned about the victims. But Charles Graber put me at ease and showed me what he was working on and how he really, really wanted to show the world that serial killers are complex and they're not just murderers. He wanted to show that Charles Cullen had a life. Yeah, and that's that's good, too, to show what was happening in the investigation. So he actually used your name and then it, in the book. So what happened after that book was released? It was it was kind of like, all right, now it's out in the open that I was this person. So is that when Charles found out you were the informant or did he know? So he found out when the book came out, Yeah, when the book came out, he didn't know. And I was visiting him in prison. We were doing a 60 minutes piece and uh, and I was visiting him kind of working uh, with 60 Minutes and Charles Graber. And uh, during that 60 Minutes interview was when they revealed to him that I had been working undercover. Oh, wow. So you could actually watch that and see the moment when he found out? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I need to check that out because that's, yeah. that's like really interesting Yeah, it was hard. So what happened? What happened next? So the book came out. That was in back in two thousand and and um thirteen, right? The book twenty thirteen. Yes. So, so you're just how? What happened with your life then when it was revealed? Were you still working at Somerset when the book came out and everything? No, I had actually at that point I had left. I had left nursing, and I was I I had a pretty successful practice. Um, in upstate New York, I was a clinical hypnotherapist working with trauma patients and survivors of child abuse. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. So you're working there, you're cruising along, and then all of a sudden you find out that Netflix is interested in making a movie about the book. What, what was that like? Like you just got a phone call one day or how did that go down? Well, I knew that after the 60 Minutes piece, uh, when the book came out, that there, you know, there was like an initial buzz and I did some interviews and then it kind of calmed down. Um, you know, it was my 15 seconds. It wasn't even 15 minutes. And Charlie, uh, Charlie Graber called me and said, Hey, uh, Darren Aronofsky, who is, uh, an, an amazing director, writer. He did Noah, Requiem for a Dream. Um, he did uh, Black Swan. He's amazing. Wow. And he yeah. fell in love with the book and decided he wanted a screenplay. And it's like, mm, it, you know, same thing. Like, I don't really know that I want to be involved in something like that. So... As it progressed and this brilliant screenplay writer came on uh, to the project, Christy Wilson-Cairns, and then Tobias Lindholm, who did end up 
directing it, um, when they both came onto the project, I realized that this was going to be different and they were going to highlight that this was a story of friendship. It was a very complicated story of friendship, but they promised that they were going to show that it wasn't just cut and dry, that it wasn't just, okay, I found out that my friend was a murderer and now let's get them, that there's all kinds of emotions that go along with so when they told you that they were making a movie kind of about a portion of your life, when did you find out the actress that was playing you? I Oh, my God. I was such a diva. I'm so, oh, my God. So at first, there were a couple of people that were associated with the project, including Charlize Theron. Like oh she God. came onto the project first and like, I was like, okay, I get it. We're both about the same height. I'm very tall. I'm like 5'11". And she is, she's the same height. She's blonde. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But I said specifically to the screenplay writer, I wish they could get like Jessica Chastain. That, that's, and, that's awesome. And then... Into the project, Charlize pulls out and I get a call. It was like a year later. We were still working on the project and what we were doing. And Eddie Redmayne had come on to play Charles Cullen. And I got the call that Jessica had signed on. And I was just like, wait, what? Jessica Chastain signed on to the project? What? Like, I manifested this. I manifested this. <laughs> that's so That's so cool. Like, it's it's just, it's something that you'll you'll just never forget the rest of your life, that su such an amazing actress is playing you. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just so surreal, right? It is. Oh, my God. And she is, to me, she is the best actress of our time. So this movie, The Good Nurse, on Netflix is one of, if not the top movies of all time on Netflix, right? It had it had so many. Do you know how many views it had? Uh, I do know that it was number one in 93 countries at one point. And yeah, it's like up to, I mean, 100 million or something views and it's still going strong. That So, so... Since that has happened, are you, is it, has your life changed a lot as far as do people recognize you when you go out? Cause I know you also did a documentary on Netflix as well that you're in. So now your, your face is actually the real good nurse's face is on Netflix too. So, um, has, how have things changed for you with the popularity of, of the Netflix movie and, do you think that you still talking about this 20 years later is helping kind of with the healing process? Um, I think talking about it was so awkward at first because I, I, it's really challenging to be essentially excited about the way that it has changed my life and then to know that changed my life for the better and is such a horrible story 
So I was always really conflicted about talking about it. And then I realized with me talking about it, I can also very much highlight what the victim's families went through because most of the victim's families have a gag order. So I am literally the only voice for the victim's families. And I take that very seriously. The way that it has changed my life is that it has allowed me a platform to talk about mental illness and how being in the nursing field, it was so stigmatized to talk about mental health issues because it would follow you to your next job. Um, Charles Cullen had somehow flown under the radar but in our day and age, it's, you know, the, the medical community is very small, even though there's a lot of nurses, it is much easier with social media now to, to let people know that someone else was not great at another job or really struggled with mental health at another job. So I think that is one of the things that is that I've been using my platform for is to help people in the medical field understand that you should be struggling. It's normal to feel traumatized by the deaths, by the people that you're holding that die in your arms. Or if you work in a small community, the people that you have to see on a regular basis and then see them out in the world and you have to act like everything is fine. A cumulative pushing down of your emotions causes some really strange things to go on with your brain. So we should be talking about it. We should be talking about the fact that Charles Cullen was not treated for his mental illness. And that's why we are in a situation again where we have more serial killers because we are not talking about it enough. So that's where my life has changed. I don't think that people actually recognize me outside of nurses. I think that nurses know who I am and nurses see me and think, do I know her? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's that serial killer's friend. That, that's, that's cool, though. I think that's really cool. So what, what my question, one of the questions for you is, with what advice do you have for nurses? Because clearly you went through this and and I even know that in the hospital, like you're just you're just working there and you see some stuff that's that's unkosher, I guess you would say. And you and but you feel like you can't say anything because say I was in the same boat as you, like you're a single mom. You don't want to lose your job. You need the insurance, whatever. And. But but clearly this stuff's still happening. So this this woman, Heather Presty, that was in the news this week, she's been doing this since to only 2020. To, so it's just recent. She obviously has nurses that are coworkers and stuff. So when when is it when is it appropriate to to say something or to or what are some warning signs that maybe you kind of overlooked because you thought you just oh, you you want to think the best in people and you wouldn't possibly think someone was trying to do something like that i also think it's abnormal to go from questioning someone's decisions 
that they're making in nursing, um, you know, thinking perhaps there's, um, there's a lack of training or they're just not, I don't know, or they're just not cut out for this field. It's, it's unusual for us to go from that thought of recognition, something's not right, to are they murdering people? So that arc is is something that I would have never gone to, and I can't imagine that, that any other colleagues go from this is a really weird person, and I probably don't align with align with them energetically to oh, I wonder if they're killing my patients. So to me, the things that hindsight is twenty twenty. The things that stuck out for me is that befriending someone and having that person that you're so close with, um, sometimes when they're making decisions that you kind of tilt your head, you should be listening to that. Listen to the fact that they're, they're not doing things that are necessarily something that align with your own integrity. And so... There were times when I essentially even covered up for Charlie. I covered up for him when I walked in on him and making decisions during codes that I was like, well, he's so brilliant. Maybe it's just me. But my gut was telling me something was wrong. And I didn't listen to that because I didn't have the confidence in thinking that I knew better than Charlie. Well, the fact is our gut usually knows better than our heart and our brain. Yeah, I think that advice is good in every aspect of life. Like something that's that's like an instinct that we have to tell us that something might not be right. And when you blow it off, you always go back to the situation and, and you're like, oh, I yeah. kind of that that's the worst part is when you ignore it. But that's to be human, right? It's to be human. And it's also our work, isn't it? to test ourselves it's it's everyone's work to understand the signs and understand what your body is telling you because your body is really freaking smart it's it's kind of crazy because i i think it's even though this happened to you it's good that you can look back and say uh that was weird i did i did question that because it would almost be scarier if you were like oh my god i just really had no idea you know, nothing triggered inside me to say something wasn't right. So <laughs> at least your body seems like it's working normally. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that I did not necessarily trust myself. One of the questions I always get is, how do you trust your colleagues? How do you trust people around you? And the fact is, I trust them more now because I understand that all of that was about me. I didn't trust myself. And now that I've learned to trust myself, it's not really about trusting other people. It's learning to listen to myself and understanding when you're truly aligned with someone and you're not. And understanding that those people that you're not aligned with should not be in your inner circle. That's that's really good advice for all aspects of life. So in this recent case, this Heather Presti chick um 
her defense team is saying that she felt sorry for these people, quote, she felt sorry for these people and was trying to alleviate their suffering. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> um, so I really wanted to believe that Charlie Cullen was a mercy killer and wanted so badly to believe that he was never a mercy killer. And during his confessions, he was very performative in saying that he wanted to end these people's suffering. And that was just total. Am I allowed to curse? Yeah. <laughs> total freaking bullshit because I knew the medications that he used. And I found out later on he didn't just use medications that could very much um, cause a lot of pain and terror in people, but he used something called decuronium. And vecuronium is a paralytic. So he would inject a paralytic into people who were very clear and aware, and he would completely paralyze them so that they could not breathe, they could not call out for help. He also did not, um, did not target those people who were the sickest. He just did random shit where he would inject IV bags not meant for any specific patient. So he was just playing, just enjoying people being essentially tortured by this happenstance of who's getting the bag. And that's not mercy killing. That's not targeting people who are being kept alive um, because, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's because we're misusing technology, maybe it's, you know, the, the family just isn't ready to make those decisions yet. He didn't look at those people. Um, although he did kill some of those people as well, but his, you know, he, he murdered a 21-year-old in Somerset Medical Center. So it's almost sadistic, like sadistic behavior. Yes, absolutely. So speaking of the medications he used, we know that one of the medications that he used was insulin. And this case this week, this this Heather Presty, she also used insulin to kill her patients. There's also another case that was out of the UK that an, a neonatal nurse was killing the babies using insulin. Do you think that there's any way that the, there's some kind of a, a copycat aspect to this that they know about the Charles Colin case? No, I, you know, that that is something that I thought about as well. However, insulin makes sense because you're not going to look at low blood sugars in critically ill patients uh, so much that you would assume that their insulin levels, their blood sugar levels would be off just because of all the other medications they're taking. If they're septic or, um, you know, it's a, a drop in blood sugar is not something that's out of the ordinary. Um, and it's something you have to specifically test for that marker that it is a synthetic insulin that 
that a body is not making that particular insulin and there is a marker to tell. We're not going to test that unless we suspect that there's something going on. So for a murderer, it would make sense to give them insulin because you can't really backtrack on that and find out who gave it to them. It's a really good way to, and I'm probably giving tips to people right now. Jesus, there's any serial killers out there. We will find you. We will. It's just interesting to me because I, I work in pathology. So of, of course, when you're, when you're going to be any kind of a good nurse or a good PA or anything, you always have to think about the, the negative ways people would do something. Yeah. How, how, how would you kill somebody? You know, even though I'm not thinking of doing it, I think like, well, how, how would you, how could you and get away with it because it doesn't show anything because that makes you think about how, how people commit crimes like that and stuff. But I don't, in my profession, like I don't know much about the drugs. I don't give drugs to people. So it's just interesting that that would be the, the, my, the mentality of a nurse to say like, that's how you would hurt someone under the radar kind of because I you know just as a regular person like me like I don't really think about medications like that and but you're right it's interesting a a lot of people don't realize that when you test someone's blood you don't just find every single thing that could be wrong with them like you have to specifically test if you're looking for something yes and that just wouldn't be cost effective in the hospital to be like oh let's test for this insulin marker on every patient to make sure they're not killing the patient absolutely patients. absolutely and that's why charles cullen got away with it for so long too i remember before he was fired we were actually blaming the lab because we could have like 10 seriously low dangerously low blood sugars every morning and we were all like oh my god I just got a call too. My patient's blood sugar is like 13. Like what is happening? And we just thought, oh my gosh, the lab must have gotten, you know, different testing modalities or their algorithm is off or we weren't thinking that there's a murderer and the hospital knew, the hospital knew that there was a murderer. The hospital knew that he was murdering people, but they hadn't fired him yet. That, yeah. And, and just think about like you guys are confused with that. And you did bring this to the attention to the lab, right? You were you said. And then now you have a whole other department that's involved. That's just like, what are we screwing up? Because something clearly doesn't seem right here. Yes. So speaking of the the whole mercy killing thing, one interesting fact about the woman that we were talking about this week, Heather Presti, is that although she's 40, she's 41 years old, she just became a nurse like in 2019 and started working and started killing in 2020. And prior to her becoming a nurse, she worked in a a vet office as a vet tech where she said that she euthanized animals, which is, which makes me really curious. Like, cause if you have an animal that's, that's sick, you would do that. Right. It's just, it's just really crazy. Right. Yes. And what that must have done to her brain, if she was already struggling with her mental health and then to be in charge of really just euthanizing animals, like they say that you serial killers always start on animals. They start small, Charlie, Colin, started on animals and tortured animals 
So, oh my gosh, that leap, that is just chilling. That's chilling. I know it's so, it's so disturbing. And if you just were working as a nurse and someone, an older person came in that just was a new nurse, not that it's old, but you know, she went to school later than norm, than people normally would, you would, you would just be innocently like, oh, cool. Like you, you upgraded, you got a better job and you're, you're doing great. And, and you just wouldn't even think that, think of this stuff. It's just, it's just, it, it just is so scary because everyone has to go to the hospital at some point in their life and put your trust and vulnerability yeah, into yes. people. And with the, the state of healthcare right now, with it mostly we're staffing with these traveling nurses. And yes, I was a travel nurse when I worked with Charlie Cullen. Oh my God. But and I'm not saying anything against travel nurses. It's just that idea that there is such a turnover with nurses now that it would be even harder for us to catch people uh, if, if they were actually harming patients. Uh, Charlie was solidified in a position for a long period of time, which they did find out. Five hospitals know at least that he was harming people maybe not murdering some of them knew that he was actually murdering people so it was a consistent issue with him whereas now with traveling nurses it could be at any time and we're not going to pick up on it the way that we did with charlie i think the best way for us to protect ourselves and to protect our loved ones is to make sure that we're asking questions. Ask, what are you giving me? What is your name? What is your last name? What it, you know, how long have you been here? So ask those questions because it's really the people that are closest to the patients that will be able to recognize things a lot faster. That is one thing that I really like about the way healthcare is going. Because I have, you know, I have one of my kids has an autoimmune issue and we're constantly like at the doctor, medications, treatments. I like that I have access to all of her imaging, all of her blood tests, because I could see if something's, if something's not right. I mean, I know some stuff, which is good for the average person. It's not, but. You, you like back even 20 years ago, you wouldn't have access to your chart like that. It was like none of your business kind of thing. I know. And I love that, too. That makes so much sense. Uh, you know, log on to your records. Log on. Read what they're saying. Ask someone about what what those medical records mean. And yes, I think I think that is definitely one of the ways that we can protect ourselves being a, a really, really strong advocate for yourself and a really strong advocate for your family. So how long have you been a nurse? Like, when did you graduate nursing school? How many years has it been? So it's coming up on 36 years, but I also worked as a home, not a home health aide. I, they call them CNAs now. But okay. we were just an aide, and I started as an aide, and so I've probably been in the nursing field, well, in the medical field for closer to 40 years. 
So that the reason I ask is because we're going to stop talking about this depressing subject of serial killers. <laughs> and we're going to switch gears a little bit just because you have so much experience as a nurse. This week in, in the news, Maria and I also talked about how the CDC just put out a report from 2021 saying that there were 278,000 ER visits due to foreign bodies, and over half of them are sex toys. So I figured since you've I been a nurse- I that episode so much. <laughs> it's so good. And I didn't even really get into all of my stories because I wanted to save them to speak with you. But before, obviously, with all your years of experience, before we start talking about what weird items people are using for sex toys- what other foreign items have you come across that are kind of unconventional, either like a kid swallowing something or, or anything like that? We definitely took a lot of esophageal coins out. Like that was an obvious thing. Um, I found uh, we, we found a miniature G.I. Joe and <laughs> the kid's nose once, you know, pulling that out and then like the little arms coming out. That Aww. was fun. But um, yeah, the number one memory that I have with a foreign a foreign body, I had come into the ER. It was still dark outside. And I'm looking up. This was back in the day when you popped the X-ray film up onto the, the oh, yeah, onto the film board so that you could see. And I walked in the doors open to the and I'm looking up at the X-ray. And I see these words, like perfect, Pantene, written across. And I'm looking and I'm like, did the x-ray team, like, was it, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, because we did some crazy things on the night shift. So I was like, oh, that was probably a joke. And I walked up and one of the other nurses, she was so sweet and so old. And she was like, oh, this poor man, he fell on that pantene bottle oh my god why why does every dude say they fell on something that got stuck up their butt like it's who would ever even think that was possible why would they just lie about it like that was oh my god you know and yes sex toys we used to get like vibrators that were still vibrating and you know they would come in sounding like uh, you know they were they were brushing their teeth with it, and uh, that was always the best. Like we would have to put them in the in a special room because they were vibrating. Um, oh and then God. I had yeah I had one patient looks like this weird up inside their uh, their colon, and it was a perfect X on the X ray. And it was a cigar holder they had put up there. And then another one up there to try to get this the other <laughs> cigar holder out. And it got stuck. So it was a perfect X. Oh, my God. I can't imagine because it's like I've gotten foreign body so many good ones. Well, first, I'll tell you some of the good ones I've gotten that are non, non-sexual. Um, one time I got this thing that said it was in the patient's stomach for like 13 years or something in their stomach. And it was a patient that had schizophrenia or something. And it was this balled up thing of just black stuff, which it just looked like 
hemolyzed blood or something in the stomach, like old blood around the um around this item. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because it was almost black. And I, I kind of rinsed it underwater and it didn't come off that much. So then I put a little bit of like the bleach water we use to clean our tools. And it revealed that it was like a crinkled up gift bag, like with little tiny hearts on it. Somebody ate and it just was in their stomach for, for years. I mean, just like the craziest shit. And then we had this other guy we would get every single week. We got in another schizophrenic case of he would take the tips of knives, like cut off tips of knives and shards of glass, just really sharp things and swallow them. But it was like every week we were getting specimens from endoscopy from from them removing these pieces out of this guy that was swallowing this stuff. Um, and I other things from like bulimic patients, like um, a, a butter, a huge butter knife from tr- trying to make themselves throw up, um, pens, pencils. I mean, yeah, we we got like a huge, like a standard size butter knife out of someone's esophagus. It's it's just like. It's completely crazy to think about that. But anyway, we get we get all this stuff and I never get to hear the patients or or, because I never took care of these patients. I just get them in a bag in the lab. So what it when when these patients come in, I mean, is that a common a common thing that they will like they'll lie about what happened or or some of them? Oh, they They definitely lie. And we would see a lot. A few times I saw physicians very heterosexually married physicians who would come in with their boyfriends and yeah it was it was really challenging the lives that they had to have behind the scenes um but definitely some mentally ill people i i remember one of them he collected knitting needles just to put in his penis and so he had like an entire collection of different colored knitting needles and sometimes he couldn't get them out so i mean that was probably once a month he would come in um and when he came in he would tell you that was what he was doing no he would he would definitely say you know just just my penis is hurting like there would never be I think there's a knitting needle in there I and we we definitely pulled out other things out of his bladder um safety pins and bobby pins and smaller things that he would use and again for some reason those like little uh poly pockets you remember the poly pockets yeah yeah, we would uh, we were finding poly pockets in like weirdest places. It's it's interesting cuz when I went to PA school, I never I never heard anything of it. Nobody ever said anything about foreign bodies or anything. And I'll never forget the first time I got one was it was a travel toothbrush holder in a specimen bag that was covered in shit. And it was from like a 78-year-old guy. And I remember just being so confused because I was in my my early 20s and I was just like, what is happening right now? And then one of the pathologists explained to me about the prostate gland and how like men don't really talk about it. But that's 
that's what gives them the best orgasms and they stick things up there to be able up their rectum to be able to touch their prostate and and I definitely did find that 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 was a that was the most common sexual foreign body I got would be from men rectal from from men never I actually never had one from a female ever out of all the ones I've ever seen the only thing that we would find in females not sexually but they would forget they had a tampon in and then oh, yeah. come in with terrible infections and odors that were insanely awful awful and we would always find these like moldy tampons that, that had just necrosed inside to their vaginas and it was Oh my God. It was absolutely one of the worst smells I've ever smelled in my life. This episode is brought to you by Stink Bomb. That is our sponsor for this episode. And they have an awesome product. As you can hear, talking to my friend Amy Lochran, nurses have to deal with some awful smells. She was just talking about a stinky old tampon that she had to take out of someone's vagina in the emergency room. This product is great for nurses, obviously, because if you had that in your pocket, you could just kind of put it on right underneath of your nose and you could smell whatever flavor is the stink bomb instead of a dirty, nasty tampon in your face. But not only that, it's good for anybody that has to deal with bad smells, people that have to deal with trash or changing diapers or anything like that. So it's a really awesome thing. My favorite smell personally right now is evergreen because it is almost Christmas time and I love Christmas time. So I would love using that right now. You could use code MKD15, which is 15% off all products on stinkbombodorblocker.com and not only do you have to buy this if you're a nurse, it's like it's just a must have. You should have it in your pocket. They have little things that you could put on your lanyard. But also you might want to buy this as a gift for someone at your doctor's office or if you work at a doctor's office, someone should just give it. It's a, it's a nice little inexpensive gift that you could give to a nurse you like to just say, thanks, like here you go. And you could buy a whole couple boxes of them and give out little trinkets and I just love, love giving out little gifts like that at uh, holiday time. So check out stinkbombodorblocker.com and get my favorite flavor of evergreen. I I agree with you when you're talking about smells. We got a tampon one time out of a, an elderly person's vagina who was way past oh, yeah. menstruating. And just it was really one of the most smell just opening the bag and putting it on you know our cutting board oh, yeah. there Trauma. it smelled up the entire Trauma. lab it's it it's just it, it's crazy to think that you wouldn't you wouldn't know that that was up there but i think because of these stories i'm always like extra like double check triple check just because i i i'm so scared of that you know it's like a fear of mine to leave something like that up there. And well, and also, interestingly enough, it, that these people would also have sex with a tampon in. and It just jams it up there further. <laughs> yeah, it jams it up there further. You know, it's a musket ball. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's more powerful than a musket ball. 
It just, it'll, I know that you don't well. think about like this, that, that space that you have around your cervix that's up there. Like you yeah. could, you could really store stuff up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling Maria that I said like that there's a medical term for it and they say vaginal vault. And I'm like, yeah, cause you could like, it's a vault. You could store stuff all the way up there. You wouldn't even know it. Hey, that's, you know, that's what women do also when, uh, they're smuggling things in from other countries. Or yeah. to other countries. So what, so you said you saw the Pantene bottle and I've, I actually never got a shampoo. I'm lying. I might, I think I got a Dove deodorant spray bottle, like the arm, the um deodorant, you know? Yeah. I, could. I never had a shampoo bottle, but I hear lots of people say shampoo bottles are like a common. Yeah. Shampoo bottles. And now that we have Costco, those shampoo bottles get a lot bigger. <laughs> It is true. You can't believe how big the diameter is of some of these things. Like, it's it's mind-boggling. I had, I mean, I've had, I told you the travel toothbrush holder. I've had so many dildos and stuff. That's, I mean, one time I got a dildo that was, that had a condom on it that was covered in poop. I just thought that that was a little weird because I'm like, why do you have to put a condom on a plastic thing? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't really understand it. it, I can think of, but I'm concerned about myself that I can think of those. But the the crazy thing is, is that you, if you were ever to give a man advice, you would say like, use something that has a wide base because if the base is wide, but like, I've had plenty of ones with wide bases that get all the way stuck up people. Well, you would never think that a Costco family size canteen bottle could get stuck up there, but here we are. I know. I I've seen the craziest size things, and not personally, but on the when people send me things on Instagram that I'm just like, oh my god. But the the craziest thing that I ever had was I had a half eaten pear out of someone's rectum, a rectal farm body from a man. And then, of course, I like go in the chart to look and see what the notes are from from the ER. And it said that a man stated that wife stuck pear in his butt and was eating it out. Like it's it's crazy. And and obviously for me to have a pear that's covered in poop and blood is is crazy. But then thinking about the 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 doctors and nurses in the ER that had to deal with this patient and number one had to take this story down. How how do you talk to a patient seriously when when I mean this guy was open to say what happened at least he didn't say he fell on it, um, <laughs> but there were teeth marks out of this out of this pair and like when when somebody's talking to you about something crazy like that how do you just have a, a straight face and say okay I'm just documenting this you're not like what so the I have yeah I have this uh, this canned answer I just say you know. We've all got a story, don't we? We've all got a story. <laughs> yeah, there was. There you was. just have that kind of personality, though, that you could be like, "You're, you're good. You're good." Like yeah, I, I've we, seen it. Yeah, like, ooh, yeah, mm-hmm. we got this. That um, one of the uh, this wasn't in an actual orifice. However, this was a really interesting patient that I had. And a woman, uh, oh, just in regular abdominal folds, uh, she started to notice that there was feces 
running out of one of her abdominal folds and uh, she couldn't figure out what was happening and she came in with a terrible infection. And so I was helping the doctor just like, and it wasn't a large abdominal fold. I mean, it was fairly substantial, but um, so we're holding up the abdominal fold and there is feces running out of what looks like a hole on one side. And as we went around a little bit to the back and pulled up, it was a whole roll of Mentos, Mentos that had fall. I, I don't know if she was lying down and had fallen into her abdominal fold and she just from mental health issues had not actually cleaned herself very well and it had eaten through into her colon. Wow. Yeah. That's that is so insane. Yeah. So it just it, so you're saying that the the mento it was a roll of mentos and it just was laying there on her skin yeah. and eroded her skin into her underlying bowel. Yeah. You see, like, I, this is like what I kind of love about pathology because every single day I could hear something that just blow my blows my mind like <laughs> more than yesterday. Right. Like you just you just never the, the it there's an endless there's it's endless material. You know, it's just it's still I still am shocked by certain things, though. I like it, it. It's it's interesting that after 40 years, I can still hear something where I'm like. What the Yeah, you're like, I didn't even know that was a possibility. Never even thought of it. I know. I love I love it so much. It's like what keeps me going all the time because like I'm the same way. I'm like, I have all this experience. I hear all this stuff. And now like with Instagram and stuff, I get to hear stories from all over the world, the crazy stuff. And it's like, never heard that one. Never heard that one. (laughs) Thanks for giving me. I always I always like to say, like, at the, I'm kind of a dork, but like at the end of the day, I'll just sit there and be like, "What's something like new I learned today?" I just, it's like, and and this is this is going to be my pearl of the day. So thanks. You have the most <laughs> wonderful, beautiful dorkiness. <laughs> all right, so where we could stop talking about sex toys now, although I could talk about them all day. But what what's going on in your life now? Like, what do you want to share with everyone about what projects you're working on now? Oh my gosh, this project that I'm working on, which Nicole is going to be with me on this project, which I'm so excited. Um, I really have been concerned about the mental health of our nurses and our healthcare. Um, I hate the word industry. Oh my gosh, it makes us sound like we're, you know, in cogs of a wheel, like we're from Taco Bell or something. That healthcare profession is really struggling emotionally and mentally. And after the Charles Cullen thing, I really struggled. So, and I did it silently. So I started going to workshops and retreats and really working on my mental, mental health behind the scenes. So I have decided to put together the modalities that I used and some of them very non-traditional. Uh, different types of healers and shamans and Akashic records readers and gurus and 
um, medicine women, you name it, really cool stuff, plus one-on-one therapies, very traditional therapies. And I'm bringing all of those together in an amazing team at retreats, specifically for caregivers. So if you are a caregiver, then I would say log on to the website. It actually just went uh, went live on 11.11. If you'd like to be on the wait list or learn more about it, it's mostimportantpatient.com. And we came up with Most Important Patient actually with don'tclockout.org, who is, uh, they are a team that help people um, and the healthcare community who are either either thinking about ending their life um, or if they are struggling with their mental health, uh, don't clock out. Uh, they are going to be receiving some of the proceeds uh, from our retreats. Um, but anyway, I would love it if you would at least log on, uh, see if there's, uh, if you have any interest in doing that. I will be at every single retreat. And Nicole, you are going to be at our retreats, the, at least the next three. I'm hoping you would, you will. Yes, I, I will. I can't wait. I've already, I saw that the last one you have planned in Sarasota and Gabe and I were like, oh, we know we're, we're going to, because that's where Gabe's dad lives. So we're like, oh, we Love know it. we're, we're going to take them to dinner. We already have, we already have our dinner planned out for <laughs> next year. Well, the you know the first one is in June of 2024, and that one is uh, is already set as being at the Marriott in uh, in Savannah, Georgia. And the second one, we really wanted to have it in Sedona. However, it looks like they are are going to be um, it's going to be too big. We can't find a venue to hold everybody that wants to go to these events. So I would say join the wait list because they are already starting to, with word of mouth, sell out. Yeah. And I think it's really important that you're doing this. It's it's something new, but it's it's almost a, like a pioneering thing that you're doing here because I think that there's a lot of talk, there's been talk over the past years about the mental health of like soldiers who see people die all the time, which obviously, if you see your friends or coworkers or just innocent people traumatically dying, that that could have an impact on you. But there, there's never been really a focus on people in healthcare that are around dead people all the time, too. Yes. And so, I mean, if you if you see an older person that dies, it's it's like, OK, they lived a full life, their whole family's there and stuff. But then you that that's not the case all the time when you're in the hospital. You see horrible stuff of parents losing children and people losing their their loved ones, uh, young, traumatic from car accidents or anything, even just cancer. Like thinking about a young person getting diagnosed with cancer and losing their life early, and um, it it's just it's just expected that you're supposed to just be strong and get over it and especially you guys as nurses working on the floor because like in pathology i i see i've seen horrible horrible stuff all the time even if it's just like a biopsy on a person i'll never forget one time i was i was grossing a colon on a young girl like 19 years old and i opened it up they she had an obstruction and 
and I was just staring at it. And I'm like, this is cancer. This is it's it, this is cancer. She's 19 and thinking like, I don't I don't have to deal with their family, you know. So for me, there's a disconnect. I don't know what she looks like. I don't have to take care of her. I don't know her mom and dad and her boyfriend, whatever it is, you know. Um, and and but nurses have to deal with their families as well and it and hearing people cry and like really cry and then you go home at night and you're supposed to just be like a normal person after dealing with that all day sometimes multiple days in a row it it's important and the interesting thing is it literally changes our brain and we're not dealing with those emotions in the moment and just like a soldier, we hold on to those things and it is affecting our everyday lives. Now, we don't maybe have 20 years like I had to go on this quest of figuring out how to feel better. But if people have at least a week to just immerse themselves and know that this is it is a retreat specific for what we go through as medical professionals. It just, I, I could have used that. I really could have used that. And I think that it would have taken me a lot less time if I could have at least sampled and been awakened to other, other potential ways to heal myself. And I, that's really what I want to offer people. And now that I do have this platform, I can at least use this platform to help other people that struggled emotionally and mentally the way that I did and the way that Charlie Cullen did. I think I'm going to tell you what's in your future, I think. I think that this is going to be almost a a mandatory thing for nurses. Like, let's say you get two or three weeks vacation a year. You also get one week a year where you have to go and like address your mental health and address these things it almost almost like the hospital will pay will pay for you to go do these things i think it would make it it would just make so many things better for for nurses in general or anyone really working in healthcare but just even the stress that you guys deal with like one of my best friends is a nurse and she has a lot of stress with like she doesn't feel like her floor is staffed adequately and she she gets really upset because sometimes patients will get really sick when they shouldn't because there's no one to take care of them or even worse sometimes and coming home and just blaming yourself and it it just takes a toll on you and it, if if these if these healthcare professionals had a week to kind of unwind and learn that and meet a whole other bunch of people and all you're doing is kind of forced to talk about it cuz you're always just told to be hard, be hard and, and, and not let it affect you. But like a nurse, a doctor, a PA, anybody, we're, we're all humans still. And we, we all have the same feelings as every other person. And, and you need to really address that. And I think what you're doing is, is just, it's, it's awesome, but I could see it like being just this whole other thing within the next coming years coming up. You know, I, and I hope that, they do have those options to be able to spend that amount of time and immerse yourself in healing. Immerse yourself because a lot of times what we do, we take vacation and we don't necessarily do the things that, that 
we should be doing, which is taking care of ourselves. We do other things like take a cruise and go and get drunk for a week, which, you know, yay you. I mean, if that's what you want to do, you know, if we go away or if we go to a conference, it's about once again, it's about work. And these are about really being able to immerse yourself in taking care of yourself and taking care of yourself emotionally. The other thing that we've done is made it extremely unique that it's a Wednesday to Wednesday. So all you have to do is do one weekend and then add some days onto your weekend so that you don't have to be messing around with a bunch of weekends and try to move things around. Yeah. And that's good because obviously you're a nurse, so you've worked the schedule and everything and you see you see that that would work best for you guys. It's kind of it, it's it's funny because when you're saying all this stuff, I, I do recall after having my younger kids about them saying a similar thing to being a mom and just being like the most important person to take care of is yourself, because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be a good mom. And it's it's kind of the same thing. Like if you don't take care of yourself as a nurse, you're not going to be a good nurse. It's not selfish to think yeah. that way. And, you know, it's interesting how I was always told that when someone comes at you or you're dealing with, uh, you know, let's say an irate family member or someone just isn't dealing with their grief because we, you know, we all have that with a patient's family member or a patient coming at us. And I remember being told to just send them love and that helps you calm down. And then I had a situation and actually this wasn't that long ago and someone was coming at me and I remember I wanted to send them love because it was what I was trained to do. And, and what I realized was I needed to send myself love. I needed to give myself that compassion, give myself that kind of understanding and give myself a gentle space to be able to respond and react the way that I should react and give myself that love. And then it's not about trying to heal someone else. It's not about, once again, making an excuse for someone else. It's about, I I get to respond the way that I need to respond. And I love myself for doing that. I, and I think that's why these retreats are so important, because like I could say from personal experience, like I have no idea how to do that. So wh while I'm there assisting with the retreat, I'll also be taking up some of the classes to learn how to do things. Because what you were saying earlier in the, in the interview was interesting when you were saying that you didn't have to learn how to trust other people. You needed to learn how to trust yourself. It's like that's that's just kind of mind blowing advice to me. And I think a, you need to hear things like that and learn techniques about that in order to pro, to respond to what's going on in your life. And I just I I think it could be not only be helpful for nurses, just but for anybody really. This stuff. Yeah, and you don't have to be a caregiver to attend these retreats. It's just that it's mostly geared toward healthcare workers, but anyone, anyone can certainly come and get those techniques. One of the things that I'm most excited about is uh, the professionals from 
that from debriefing the front lines, all of them will be there and they'll be leading group therapies. They'll also be doing one-on-one therapies with people who need debriefings. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. I'm excited for all of us and I'm just so excited that you're going to be there with me. I know. I'm 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 so excited too. I had a great time hanging out with you last time, so it was it was awesome. All right, so where can where can people follow you? Do do do, do, do where are you active like on Instagram, Twitter, like I'm not I, you know, I'm not on Facebook a lot, but you can certainly find me on Facebook. The reason I'm not on Facebook a lot is that there's so much politics and I end up getting angry. I I know. I just that's I try to tune it tune everything out because it's just yeah i i only follow my the page of my town just to see like what's well, going on sense. that makes sense however on instagram i am amy the good nurse amy lochran and i'm also uh amy the good nurse.com uh for if anyone really wants to do any one-on-one sessions with me I still do that. I still will book out for that for healing trauma. And of course, now the new retreats are mostimportantpatient.com because you are your most important patient first. Okay, awesome. Thanks. We'll put all of those links in in the episode as well so people can find you really easy. Thanks so much for being here today. I always love talking to you. You're the best. Love you, Nicole. Love you. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.